Welcome to the Death Panel. To support the show and get access to our weekly bonus episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you want to help us out a little bit more, you can share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, or follow us on social media at deathpanel underscore. We've got Alex Salmon coming up, but first, just real quick, we wanted to check Brief in. programming note. Yes. Brief note. We are going to be switching up programming a little bit next week. We will be re-releasing some old episodes. It's going to give Artie and I a chance to really finish up where we're at in our manuscript, which is due very soon. So we need a second to work on the book. And Phil also has a you know a uh, appearance that he has to do next week. So we kind of had a scheduling which, conflict, which will be re- will be revealed at the appropriate time. Right. <laughs> right. But so for yeah, for those of you who have asked. A, you know, a couple times. Do you people ever take a break? Yes. Uh, no, actually, I guess because we're going to be writing no, but the now. book and Phil's going to be doing some other attendant work that's related to Death Panel next week. But we will be off. Yes. Um, so, but, but there will be episodes for you. Right. We're going to be re-releasing an old episode into the patron feed that many of you who are patrons have not heard before and many of you who are not patrons should sign up to rehear and we'll be also unlocking a patron favorite into the main feed on thursday so stay tuned for that next Mm -hmm. week so we'll be there just not in the we'll be displaced in there it'll be old us (laughs) exactly old us will be new here um yes (laughs) (laughs) okay Uh, all right yeah i think that's good let's uh let's talk to alex Yep, yep exactly cool Today, we're joined by Alex Salmon, staff writer at The American Prospect. Thanks for coming on, Alex. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. No, we're so glad to have you here today because we wanted to talk about a recent article that you wrote called, quote, uh, How Joe Biden Defanged the Left. (laughs) (laughs) It's about some of the dynamics that have been playing out between, you know, alleged progressive organizations and the Biden administration. I was wondering if you could sort of start us off by describing this dynamic and this relationship that's going on. Sort of what is it like to get access to the Biden administration if you are a progressive organization? Yeah. So I guess I should probably start by saying that for progressive groups in D.C. right now, things are are kind of kind of great. I mean, for for people who who work for these (laughs) For these groups, you know, in the Obama years, you know, there, there was never any pretense that Obama enjoyed the, the company of, of these progressive groups or, or, or leadership from these, uh, you know, activist uh, groups or, or anything like that. Uh, with, with Biden, especially because his chief of staff, Ron Klain, is, is perceived to be an ally of, of progressive causes, progressive groups, um, they, these, these groups have more access to the White House. They're, they're, they're being kept closer than, than they would have been under any Democratic president of, of any of our lifetimes. So w- what that means basically is that they're being invited to, you know, dinners at the vice president's house. They're being invited to <laughs> press junkets. They're being, you know, welcomed into the White House for meetings with the, you know, the inner sanctum with, with some regularity. Um, and they're doing fundraisers where, you know, they get to go uh, stand side by side with, you know, some high ranking member of the White House and, I mean, there was even, I think, um, a, a Politico piece, maybe a Times piece not that long ago that was talking about Ron Klain's 60th birthday party and how it's the hottest <laughs> invite in D.C. and everyone's oh planning for it. sounds like hell. It seems insane, but that's, you know, that's part of it. It's like, you know, you, if you get in the rooms and you get the dinners and you get to the fundraisers, like that's a big part of how how stuff works in, in politics and in, in D.C. in particular. And um you know, it's a it's a non-trivial part of, of how this whole thing is running. And I'm curious because 
you know, I think from, from the outside and thinking about like the, for example, like the infrastructure package and, and all of the, the demands that were like excluded from that package, you know, this looks to me like the, just the cabining of all of these, you know, like pretty obvious rolling of all of these progressive uh, groups. Like, do they perceive it that way? Like what, like exactly, you know, they, they seem to be getting like the invites to the dinners, like what is that? What's the exchange value there? Like, what do they see themselves like getting from this, if anything? Because because like from the outside, it's like, OK, you're just getting owned and invited to nice dinners, I guess. But like what? They have a like, ceremonial role. Yeah, it's a ceremony. yeah, there's a courtly role, right? You get to be near the jester or something. But like, what, what do they see themselves? Because they, you know. Clearly, they perceive some exchange value to this. Like, what are they telling themselves? Yeah, I think that the, the thinking is that, uh, you know, if they're in the room, if they're in this, you know, if they're developing these relationships and they're staying on on good terms, that eventually, you know, they might be able to to nudge things here or there, or they might be able to accept some ideas into, you know, the White House and its senior leadership. I I, I think, you know, it, it, it's maybe even useful to, to draw a comparison to the Obamacare fight in 2009. And um, SEIU, for example, had the labor union had representative going to the White House all the time. He was in all the meetings. He, you know, he had some of the best access of anyone in the sort of progressive world, and was there to fight for things like public option. And his, his attendance rate was incredible. Did we get a public option? Of course not. So it, it's one of these things where the hope was like eventually this guy has so much access. Uh, it, you know, it, it'll, there'll be some impact from that. Uh, those conversations and. It, doesn't happen like that though i think the 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 think the thinking i think or the feeling is that like eventually progressives are going to get there it's like eventually the white house is going to make them whole they just you know keep on it and don't offend anyone <laughs> and that's kind of long, long been the strategy unfortunately and is definitely the strategy now it's like such a popularity contest approach to trying to affect like a policy agenda because it seems like what They've sort of reframed or a lot of the people who are leaders um, in these progressive organizations, like I think SEIU, which you mentioned, but also I think the example of what Move On is doing is really interesting as well, which is they sort of frame it as like, well, we're trying to be besties with the Biden administration so that we're the ear that they come to first. Right. It's this kind of idea of like access breeds influence. But I think as your article so nicely shows and so obviously shows, that's really not um, panning out at all. Right. Yeah. There just has to be something other than, than, than lavishing praise. Uh, and that, you know, has kind of been the out of the gates of the strategy, you know, to, to, you know, who could be the loudest in, in declaring Joe Biden the next FDR <laughs> or the next LBJ or, you know, this kind of visionary progressive president, the likes of which we've never seen. And like to get your stuff done, to get the things that you want accomplished, there has to be some some stick. It can't be all carrot. And like um, Joe Biden isn't that guy. There's just no way. Even you know, even if you can be pleasantly surprised at what he's done, and still not be under the illusion that he all of a sudden in his seventies is going to do a total about face and be like, yeah, bring me these progressive leaderships, leadership, bring me these activist groups, and I'm just going to do whatever they tell me to do as long as they're not mean, you know, it's, it's, you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And, and, and unfortunately I think that there, you know, there really wasn't any, any formal strategy from, from the outset. I mean, all of the stumbling blocks that we are now running into one after the next, uh, we're already there when Joe Biden got elected. I mean, nothing unforeseen here. Uh, and 
you know, what's what's phase two? I don't I, that there doesn't seem to be a phase two. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be a plan other than to get invited to this series of weekly Thursday meetings that you were writing about, which seems to be something that's kind of like a holdover from the Obama era. Except for their the vibe that they run it with seems to be like completely the opposite. As you talk about, there's sort of the Rahm Emanuel strategy of calling people names and bullying uh, progressive orgs into not criticizing the Obama administration. But the Biden administration is taking this chummy route where, as you're saying, the the kind of catch becomes because everybody's so chummy and everybody's playing along, even if these organizations could criticize Biden for what he's doing or for what he's leaving out of the infrastructure bill, they've kind of already shot themselves in the foot by being so publicly supportive of the agenda and supportive of the administration. It's kind of like the things that are tacitly required to get that seat at the table, ultimately end up making the organizations look very two-faced, right? If they were to come out all of a sudden and be like, well, you know, this guy that we've been praising for three months, like actually completely sold us out and fucked us over. Like there's zero incentive or sort of social capacity. Which is what has been happening, but yeah. Right, exactly. For, for these organizations to sort of like actually take that position, it's a very smart strategy in terms of sort of a counterinsurgent way to suppress criticism because it's not even like they can come out and say, you know, we're being bullied by Rahm Emanuel for criticizing the administration. No, it's just, you know, Ron Klain, my BFF, won't answer the phone or won't seem to put my policy priorities on the agenda. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's I mean, that's exactly right. You, you, at some point, you would expect some of these groups to draw a line on something. And as this has gone, the 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 notion that we're gonna get the two track bill. I mean, obviously, nothing is. There, there's no assurances. No one's been given any assurances about anything. So it's all it's all you know. The, the wish casting, I think, is 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 exceeds DZ. There obviously are are people far beyond you know, kind of rank and file Democrats all over the place. I think are doing serious wish casting with Joe Biden. But yeah, it's also when the people who have, have are you know in charge of of seeing through these these incredibly important agenda items are doing the same thing. It's it's really not a great recipe for success. I'm I'm curious how you diagnose, like what your diagnosis of the problem is here. So like we're we're talking about these progressive groups, we should be clear. Like we're talking about the uh, Center for American Progress Action Fund, (laughs) the uh, SEIU, uh, Move On. Um, You mentioned the um, National Domestic Workers Alliance uh, or Care in Action, uh, working families party. So this is like pretty heterogeneous mix of groups. So, you know, the diagnosis might be slightly different for, for each one, but like, I feel like there's a couple different possible things or different explanations I've heard of like what's going on. Like one is we have some, some impl- like some pretty explicitly like actors who are not but like progressive is just a, is just a brand and they they're just act they're They want access within the administration. They don't have a line that they're holding to. Um, like there's nothing clear that they really, really want or are going to like go to the mat for. Um, another interpretation is like they are more, you know, true uh, on on their issues. They uh, they have a clearer line, but they're just like really uh, ignorant of history. They they f- forget what <laughs> happened. They have goldfish memory when it comes to like Obama, and they're being really strategically unwise. And then I feel like there's a third. Um, kind of explanation which is just like the way that the sector works and the way that the incentives of the core kind of like people within it even if they they have stronger sort of beliefs um their incentives are just misaligned they're trying to get to their 
you know, next annual report or they, they have like a set of metrics that they have to meet and they involve access, not actually getting what they want at the end of the day. They're not, uh, they're not sort of oriented towards actually accomplishing these big goals. They're oriented towards like maintaining some sense of reputation. So like, I don't know. And, and those aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, right. but like, I'm curious, like what your reporting tells you about what's going on inside these groups. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, the latter point that you make is obviously a general sort of Washington rot, which is a problem with these nonprofit groups and um, nonprofit leadership and, um, you know, politics in DC for many people is, is really a character drama, not really a, a fight over ideas or, or policies. And so, but that thing, that stuff has always been true. And I, and I think that that can be true and we can set it aside and, and kind of address the, the other sort of more particular failings, which, which I think are, are really what the story is at this point. Um, what, what I would add, I guess, to, to the list of groups that you mentioned are, um, the, the big environmental groups, and there are a ton of them, um, and also the major women's groups. And I think, you know, the, again, most of them are not groups where you, where you, you know, they don't come to mind necessarily right away when you think of like left-wing entities, but they're really well-funded. They are influential. And like, in terms of climate and like abortion, in terms of various health things, in terms of obviously the entire part of the care package, um, the family care package, these are like, the last, you know, the Biden administration is probably the last shot to get a lot of these things established in a meaningful way. And, you know, their silencing is also really telling. So, um, you know, we, there was a report that came out that, that um, there's a, there's a climate group called, uh, what is it, Climate Power Now. I think it's, it's run by John Podesta of all good people. Um, <laughs> oh, no. And, My favorite climate warrior. Yeah, right, right. Um, and, and so Podesta... The crazy thing is, is so Podesta had evidently had to call Joe Biden and beg him to take a call from Al Gore to talk about climate stuff. Like, oh my God. he wasn't even going to talk to Al Gore. Um, and now there's an inconvenient truth. <laughs> and um, and he only begrudgingly picked up the phone and talked to Al Gore. And so, um, you know, and this is this is the most you know the the most climate radical president in history or whatever the tagline was. Uh, he didn't really want to talk to Al Gore. And, and, and so when this two track thing came out and there was, you know, there's a little bit of environmental stuff in the, in the bipartisan package that there, there's more, there's much more money being dedicated to burnishing fossil fuel infrastructure than, or, than there is to expanding, you know, uh, carbon neutral or green tech or anything. So it's mostly, it's mostly carbon negative, um, or, you know, it's not carbon negative, it's carbon positive, but it's mostly environmentally negative. Um, there were not a single environmental group was like, Hey, wait a second. Like there's gotta be some, you know, we need either either a hundred percent assurance that this thing is not going without the reconciliation bill, or there's gotta be more green stuff in the bill. Uh, and then what we got now is Biden saying he won't double dip on anything. So if it's in the bipartisan bill, it can't be in the reconciliation bill, which means that 90% of the money for electric vehicles is, is gone. And, you know, it, again, where, there are a lot of big, big green groups in DC. Like not a single one has been like, Joe, this is unacceptable. Like we won't support this. Like there needs to be X, there needs to be Y. We have some standards. And like, you know, if, if, if even John Podesta doesn't have, you know, isn't getting the time of day on this stuff, it's like, you would think there'd be a little more alarm about that, but, but there isn't. And, uh, well, you know, that's that's interesting. It's sort of in a way it sort of complicates the like this, the story of Podesta. You think about Podesta, you think about like the ultimate Democratic Party insider, <laughs> right? Like he ran yeah. the Democratic this the sort of 
central like Democratic Party in abeyance during the Bush mm-hmm. years uh, at Cap, right? But you know, here's a person who who also can't you know doesn't seem to have any any sort of like juice on the, on this issue, but like which raises the question of I, I guess two questions for me. Like one. Is there any dissent within these organizations about how they're approaching Biden? Like, are people pissed off about this within the organizations? Uh, and two, like, you know, what possible levers are there to hold these, you know, these organizations get money from somewhere, they get funding from somewhere. But like, what's what does that accountability structure look like uh, when when they don't actually get it done? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a really good question. Um, to, to, to your first question, I think. Um, there, there, I think there is some frustration. The funny thing about reporting this piece is that I talked to a handful of people who were in the meetings, you know, who go to these Thursday meetings. Um, and I talked to some people who, you know, had used to be involved in this, in this world during the Obama years and are not part of it now. Initially, people were broadly willing to go on the record and talk about this and be like, you know, this, you know, basically to raise, raise, raise the alarm here and, and say like, look, this is insane. Uh, someone's got to do some criticizing and and the the people who are in the position to do it aren't doing it. But then when it came time to publish the thing, um, there was a lot of, there was a, there was a, a general lack of confidence. And a lot of people wanted to go back off the record or on background or, um, oh my God. so that kind of shows you that even the people who know that this is an issue uh, are concerned that they're going to lose that invitation. Um, like they don't want to get, they don't want to get blacklisted from that meeting. Um, so, which kind of just illustrates the point <laughs> broadly, you know, the point of the article is basically, you know, you know, validated in that, in the editorial process of putting it together. It's like, uh, people are willing to say this stuff, but then when, when push comes to shove and the possibility of actually criticizing Joe Biden, uh, arises, nobody wants to lose the, the invite. So it's, it's hard to even get the stuff, um, solid on the record, but there are some, there are some groups and people know it. Um, but there are also groups who are like, you know, would would deny that this is happening. Would say that everything's under control. That they're doing the jujitsu thing on Joe Biden, and soon enough, we're going to have just this incredible uh, reconciliation package. And uh, you know, no one will ever had to 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 shed a tear or utter a mean word. And um, in terms of accountability, I I don't know the answer to that. Um, I the funny thing is, I think there are groups that are have been willing to kind of to do this. And one group that comes to mind is Acre. ACRE, they, they, they've done a lot of stuff on housing and um, it's a, it's a good group. They, they, you know, they're involved and they're both, and they're willing to criticize. And so that, you know, I guess maybe sadly the thing to say is, you know, to be more supportive of these groups that are willing to, to, to break rank, but in terms of, you know, getting the political, former political director of like move on, who's doing some other thing to answer the demands of activists. I don't know. I mean, they, they, maybe the other thing to say is that, that actually like, there's so much evidence of putting pressure on Joe Biden actually works. And that like, if you look at the, at, like the eviction moratorium stuff, right. they weren't going to do that. They were happy to let that go. I mean, that was not, and that really wasn't the remit of the house or the Senate or anything. They, they, Joe Biden was happy to let that thing run out. And only because there was so much public pressure placed on him, did he, you know, find the authority that he claims didn't exist 28 hours, 24 hours prior and extend it. So I think that that's a really good example, but I think it's also a very good, like, I think it's a really good example of pressure working, but unfortunately I think it's also a really good example of the sort of 
resistance to apply, I don't know, too much uh, public pressure or too much public criticism of the administration resulting ultimately, I think, in being, uh, you know, we, we, we use the term like rolled over a, a little bit earlier, but it, like in being kind of like too easily uh, like creating conditions where demands can be too easily rolled over by like by specific actions. The thing, you know, we've talked we talked um, on on Monday uh, on, on our uh, patron episode, for example, about the eviction moratorium. And one of the things that happened since then, obviously, is that Biden's CDC, the CDC did go ahead and sort of reissue components of this eviction moratorium, but the sort of the devil is in the details on it. I mean, I just want to I'm going to repeat this in part, because I think just a lot of people don't necessarily like know this because you see the headlines and it's like, oh, yeah, Biden, like uh, reverse decision on the eviction moratorium. And what that actually means is it's not really that the CDC eviction moratorium as it was completely went back into place. Uh, It went back into place until early October. It went into place only in counties with uh, what is certified by the CDC as either high or substantial transmission and what specifically they have said about that, for instance, like if you read the CDC's document, if a county goes out of quote unquote high or substantial transmission, which are like levels of transmission is categorized by case counts, um, they're like it's like technical language for the C- within the CDC. But if a county, you know, phases out over high or substantial uh, from higher substantial transmission, Within two weeks, the eviction moratorium is no longer valid in that county. So you have all of this potential slippage that could yeah, completely there's a lot of happen holes. there. Right. And, right. So it's, and I access guess, to testing is going to absolutely dictate what kind of um, reporting the county absolutely. has as well, which is like in and of itself. Right. So which, as we've been talking about, has been restricted at the county <laughs> right, level a lot right, too. Right. So like, yeah, I guess just all I'm, all I'm saying is I, I just wanted to... Um, to clarify that, because I think it's obviously it's important to have people uh, to to show these show these moments of where like yes uh, demands have changed course. I think, for instance, you refer in your article to the um, decisions that the Biden administration was going to make in terms of like limiting keeping immigration at uh, Trump era levels, basically, um, and that co- that also is something that actually managed to catch a bunch of flack, including from these sort of like professional progressive groups, right? Um, but I think. You know, it's it's I think it's just like really important to be very clear that even even when these concessions have been fought for and happened, the Biden, it's not exactly like the Biden administration is doing anything remotely, quote unquote, like FDR like or anything that uh, should achieve plaudits. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, also not the sort of stuff that's enduring or, or durable. Like, it, you know, that's that stuff is easily, easily overturned by a successor or anything. It's. Right. That stuff is not part of a lasting policy agenda, but it does at least show that, you know, the fear, what I think people who are in these meetings who are afraid of criticizing Biden would tell themselves is that if we criticize him, he's going to turn on us. And then, and then we're really, you know, then we're really out in the cold. Um, But, you know, what has happened is in the few instances where people have been like, you know, this doesn't make any sense. Like this is actually is a total betrayal of what you committed to do on the campaign trail. And it also makes no sense. And we're going to make some noise about it. Um, he's, you know, he, he hasn't turned into a, a, like a wrathful, vengeful character who's doing stuff out of spite. He just right. rolls over and does something that's half, you know, some way of some part of the way there. And, um, you know, <laughs> right. it's, yeah. it's well, that realization. It's not a profound one or like a particularly, you know, promising one, but it's just, you know, it's worth pointing out if only to, to, to prove that the, the kind of caution 
verging on cowardice is, is predicated on something that's not true. Right. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think that a really important point, too, is that in not really having this climate where anyone calls Biden out, the people who will actually go there and call him out, their ability to sort of affect their demands are going to be necessarily limited by the fact that, you know, I think, as you're saying, it's not like Biden is actually turning on any of these people, despite the fact that that seems to be the sort of prevailing reason why people are reluctant to critique him is because they're worried about having the access revoked. But when you have... I think the pressure applied from so few groups because so few are willing to make criticisms then and also so so many are willing to claim victories where there kind of are none or where it's symbolic at best. You create this dynamic where the people actually trying to do that effective, assertive demand on the Biden administration actually have like a harder lift to do themselves, one, in terms of like resources and pressure, but also a bigger lift in terms of being able to actually um, have some sort of impact on what the final decision is. And I think the, you know, both the immigration situation and the eviction moratorium situation are really reflective of that, which is like, if we have pressure, it's effective, right? But without broad pressure, there's only so much that you can do. Yeah, that's exactly right. I had a question on that because, you know, we've talked a lot about what Biden's leverage over these groups is, is like the denial of the you know, gourmet society invite, um, <laughs> which, you know, I think I, I can hear tears falling into Starbucks coffee cups as we speak. But um, like I, I'm more curious in a way about what these groups are, you know, if they have the potential to um, exert leverage, like what what particular sources of leverage are they holding back on using? Like in the eviction moratorium case, like whatever we want to say about the policy, like outcome there, like what was gained. Um, there is this like moment. There's a lot of like public attention and pressure. There's a crisis situation that's sort of created, um, you know, because this policy is literally expiring and you're going to have this huge, you know, uh, huge, huge policy impact, like within a very short time frame, that kind of immediacy or urgency. But like beyond those sorts of events, like what sort of things could these groups be doing or what sort of leverage might they be exerting that they're not doing or that they're holding back on? Yeah, I think I, w- I would say that it's, it's kind of on, on a case by case basis. And so far as each group that has a, you know, a particular concern or, or an agenda or, or some thing they're advocating for, should be in theory all in on that one thing. And, you know, their, their advocacy for this issue should be life or death. It should be very straightforward. Um, so the fact that like, you know, realistically immigration, gun control, voting rights, um, all those things are gone. I mean, that's not, they're not even really part of the agenda anymore. The, the, the Biden administration or Biden himself rather had that, had that speech in, in July where he basically waved the white flag on voting rights and was like, what can we do? You know, um, campaign finance reform is obviously gone. I mean, these are things that, you know, stop citizens United was, is, is, was an entity in DC and still is like, you haven't heard from them. Um, someone like public citizen, which had a, a lot of input in crafting HR one, which is the, the, the voting rights bill there, you know, I think are still hopeful. Maybe that some miracle will happen. This will get passed. They don't want to, you know, they don't want to say anything, but it's like, um, for groups like that, where if that's your primary concern, all that stuff is off the table. You, you know, it, it should be very easy for them to, to 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 draw a line here and say, you know, 
we're 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 in or we're out. And if we're out, then then we're against this, and we're against being out. Getting nothing is is getting nothing. And that to me is like one of those. There there are so obviously the democratic agenda, broadly speaking, was immense going into this. I mean, there were so many things on healthcare, which is also off the table, really. On like you're not going to see a public option. You might not see drug pricing. You, you there there are so so many things. And and in in an administration like this, generally speaking, the first two years, you get two packages. I mean, you get, you know, under Obama, you get the ACA and you get Dodd-Frank. It's not like you're going to go in there and pass a thousand bills. It just doesn't happen like that. And so, you know, the fact that a lot of these groups are are very, very likely to get nothing, and it's clear that they're going to get nothing, and they're still not, you know, they're still not jumping up and down or, or you know, making, you know, issuing ultimatums and, 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 and demands like that is... It's just a surprise to me. I mean, you know, not to not to plumb the psychology too much of of these people, but I, I it just it, it's genuinely surprising to me. And I don't know exactly what the best method is or what you'd expect to see, but I I would expect to see something. Well, I mean, for example, like these organizations, they tend to have what like a, a probably a fairly lean kind of shop, like based in D.C. And then their activity is like one, they're like maybe drafting some proposals and like what sent sending emails or, you know, coordinating letter writing campaigns. Like, do they have anything approaching a connection with like a mass base at all? Yeah, it's, it's a good question there. I mean, the funny thing is, is there have been these demonstrations recently in D.C., which are kind of like these, you know, they're based off of the sort of mass cultural movement stuff. I I it's funny because you, I'm not even sure if you would know they were happening. I, I barely see them myself, but yeah. there are people like getting arrested for voting rights. And it's like, you know, someone, I forget who, if it was a handful of house members or whatever, have like gotten arrested doing some protests on the steps for voting rights. And like, you know, someone who's like works at moveon.org got arrested for, you know, standing in the wrong spot for voting rights or whatever. And it's like, it, there is this kind of strange approximation of like, a popular movement thing. The thing is, is like these networks have a huge reach. And like, if you think of like the Kavanaugh hearings or whatever, when they were, they were, you know, pushing out these emails saying, you know, call your, you know, call your representative, call your whatever. Uh, these, these groups actually do have the ability to motivate people to get people active in various ways. It doesn't necessarily have to be like a March on Washington, but in terms of like letter writing and phone calls and stuff like that, you know, the there is a critical mass for this sort of stuff. It's just the problem is, of course, that the obstacle to voting rights can't be named because the obstacle is, is Joe Biden. And like, yeah. <laughs> so it's like, what are you going to do? Send out, you know, it's like they're going right. to be arrested for voting rights. But who's standing in the way of voting rights? That's a it's really like, you, you can't say it. That's a really good point. It's like even though like you have all of this mo- mobilization membership, but it's kind of amorphous. There's not like a target because you can say, of course, like, oh, it's Republican obstructionism. But that's not really that's not really what the barrier is. And if you can't, yeah. if, if you can't, if you can't mention Biden, then you have no focal point to organize. There's no one thing and one action. Like in, in the case of the eviction moratorium, again, you know, highly like imperfect solution doesn't begin to describe what, what the reversal was. But at the very least you had this, like uh, you had people on like the steps of the Capitol. You had, I mean, the, the political reaction to this thing was, was very negative and you had an immediate sort of like outcome. 
Um, and you could say like, here, here's this thing. The, the White House could absolutely be doing this thing. They're not doing it. Now, I think the hilarious thing is like, even after they did it, like Saki like comes out the next day is like, well, you know, <laughs> we don't really know about the like the legitimate, like they just self own, of course, but they at least like do the thing. Um, but like in the case of voting rights, if you can't mention Biden as the problem, there's no focal point. Right. It's, yeah. It's, it's. Yeah, it's just like it's it's nonsense. It's like extreme. It's a, it's an extremely confusing world to live in, where it's where you know the the Democratic Party has a majority and you know is, is in charge of every chamber. It's like you know it's like they they control <laughs> you know they control the levers of power here. It's really you can't you know there's just there's no obvious thing to hang this on because you know it's there isn't anything in the way. Like this this is the thing. This is how it works. You you can when you're in charge, you're in charge, and. You know, it's uh, I mean, I don't envy trying to craft messaging around that, but that, you know, it is is pretty straightforward. And that's sort of one of the interesting things about your reporting on this, because I think typically when I think about how to diagnose the, you know, sclerosis of like uh, American democracy, like, you know, there's what lit. Liberals will do is they'll they'll criticize like Republicans and, and there's there's like more than enough like uh, Republicans are essentially idolizing Hungary right now as the model of democracy they want to go for. So like that's that's where that is. But like, you know, I, I think my approach has been to think about like the the ineffectuality of the Democratic Party. Um, but I feel like what your reporting reveals is that, sure, that might be the both of those things might be true. But there's this other set of actors that. I mean, it's interesting, like, why doesn't this, this is like a real, like, potential um, source of, like, energy, Um, and again, like, I'm not expecting, these groups are not, like, these are not a vanguard, there's nothing revolutionary about what they're doing, but at the very least, it's like, they have some energy to, like, net policy gains, Um, but it's not being, like, why do you think that hasn't gotten more, like, attention? I mean, it seems like a pretty big lever, but, I mean, you're the only person I've seen really reporting on this. Yeah, it's. I mean, I think that the, the Democratic Party, when it's in charge, is is a very frustrating entity. Um, and obviously, we could talk at extreme length about their, you know, seeming unwillingness to to wield power. Um, I think maybe part of it is that that kind of rank and file Democrats really like their representation. You know, like Democratic voters like Democrats, despite the fact that Democrats don't do anything that you say they're going to do. And that's kind of an issue. I mean, it's like. It makes it tough to it makes it tough to like open up even a conversation about like accountability when it's like, you know, the stuff that like the stuff that Obama did as president versus what he said he was going to do and what people thought he might do. And the kind of the way that they think of him as a as a president now, it's very different. And like, you know, Biden is is very well thought of by Democrats, broadly speaking, despite the fact that, you know, he's really doing very much. And I don't know, it just, this is so deeply ingrained, but the kind of standard for, for acceptable governance or acceptable, the, whatever, the acceptable standard for the wielding of power that, that people have for democratic politicians is it's extremely frustrating. It's very low. And I don't know how you like to break out of that is to break out of a, of a, of a pattern that's been been in place for a long time. But well, I think one thing that I I really appreciated about your piece as well is that you, you really called out this phenomenon also of people uh, within these organizations sort of helping to launder that 
distance, as you're saying, between what the policy promises are and what the press release says and then what's actually being passed. Can we talk a little bit about the sort of dynamic that also is emerging or that is a constant actually rather throughout the sort of relationship of these quote unquote progressive organizations to parties in power, which is the sort of complicity in the creation of like what a policy is supposed to mean too, because we have, you give the example in your article about the domestic workers bill of rights, which was left out of the family plan and the way that the, uh, I think it's the domestic workers Alliance basically cheers the fact that anything gets included in all. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah. 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 I think that that is, you know, this to me is one of the most kind of flagrant examples of this. And, um, the Domestic Workers Bill of Rights has been the priority for the National Domestic Workers Alliance for a long time. It's one of these things that constantly gets reintroduced in Congress and never gets passed. But it's like, you know, it's been around and it's a huge priority. It's like a number one priority for this for this part of the of the legislative world. And it is not in the package. It just gets left out. And some stuff gets in. There is some, you know, there there is stuff for domestic workers in the package, but the thing, that thing, which is the the great sort of flagship accomplishment that they've been striving for for years and years, is not in. And um, carrying across generations, which is another group that you know basically overlaps with them, they're both run by Ai Jen Poo, who is one of the people who's in very good standing at the White House, and you know was having dinner at, at Kamala Harris's place not long ago. This stuff gets left out, and, and rather than saying like you know we 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 respect Joe Biden for making this a priority, but he left out this incredibly crucial thing. It has to be in there. And we can't support a thing that doesn't have that in there. Uh, they're like, this is amazing. This is the best package. Like we can't wait to, we can, we commend their, their ambition and we can't wait to see it passed. And it's like, well, are they, are, what are they doing to get it passed on top of that, on top of having already given up the farm in a lot of ways. And, and, you know, and then, and then again, you know, Joe Biden is negotiating with himself and making the package smaller and smaller. And, these things that you think would be sacred that, that, you know, have been the top priorities get left behind and nothing. I mean, there's just the, the I actually got an email, you know, I got a press release email like a couple of days ago that said the bill, the domestic workers bill of rights is, is being reintroduced in Congress. Just, uh, you know, just, in just a little bit here. It's like, well, you know, that it, it could have been emancipated from that cycle where it just endlessly goes round and round and never has a, a shot of becoming the actual law, but um, but the group that created it, supported it, and, and pushed it is is not fighting for it. So you know, here we are. Yeah, it's not like I've seen some people say like, well, you know, it's like all these groups they've like lost sight of their long term goal. And part of me is like, I don't think so. I think their long term goal is the dinner parties. Almost, you know what I mean? I think that's their theory of power. I think their theory of power and their theory of change is at best incremental like little tweaks around the edges. Right. It's about doing the reasonable and doing the possible. And at the same time, making sure that you're, you know, being able to charge a little bit more on next year's like per plate per head cost for your fundraiser or something like that actually seems like what so much of the primary goal of these organizations actually is, is building their reputation, building their media presence, building their um, understanding in the public eye as sort of the people representing these issues. But they do that through this PR campaign, not through actually trying to push through their issues on a legislative sense. Right. Yeah, that's pretty much pretty much correct. No, I mean, I'm, I'm curious because, you know, I think this dynamic that you've captured is is like pretty, pretty crucial to what ended up and what didn't end up 
in the infrastructure bill. But when I hear reporting on the infrastructure bill, the scale of what was lost and like what that means is pretty, you know, is pretty much off the table. Like, you know, what what's your sense of what we're like not doing now as a result of this, this, the central, the, the, the capture of these groups um, and like what that means for like the, the policies that, you know, even policies that were maybe sort of commitments or if you think back to the sort of uh, DNC kind of uh, uh, piece that was sort of brokered, um, you know, between the sort of Bernie faction and, and you know, the, the rest of the Democratic Party, like what, what's been like left on the table? What are what are they not getting a bite at at all? Yeah, I, I, I would honestly say that I, we have no idea what we're actually going to get. I mean, and that maybe is core to the whole thing here is that, you know, like Kirsten Cinema before she went on vacation was, you know, said she wasn't going to support the <laughs> reconciliation bill. Right. So we actually have no idea what we're going to get. And, and that's the problem is, is those groups also don't know. And they're and they're deluding themselves that they think that they that that we know what we're going to get. We, we have no idea. We could easily just get a bipartisan bill and no reconciliation bill. I mean, that. You know, or we could get a reconciliation bill that's much smaller than what they're talking about now. You know, there, there, there are so many things that 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 are you know in now but might not be in. I mean, one of the things which is crazy to me is, given the kind of the relational nature of of democratic politics, is that drug pricing is one thing. You know, not super glamorous, but in the House, House Democrats have have run on drug pricing reform for like at least six years in a row now. I mean, since long time. Yeah. And, yeah. and you could argue it's been 20 years. Potentially I mean, since the 1950s. Actually. Yeah, or, <laughs> or, you know, but at least one way or another since, especially since the, you know, since 2016 and then into 2018 when Nancy Pelosi became the speaker again, and it's been drug pricing. That's the one thing it's like, they're going to do drug pricing. And that was the primary, primary promise and concern. Uh, the Biden administration, when it announced this thing, didn't even have drug pricing in it. They just left it out. And like, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, Nancy Pelosi is about to retire. It, you would think that even if it was just about being friends with your friends, that he would be like, well, I got to throw Nancy a bone here and let her do, let's get some drug pricing in here. And she can at least <laughs> say that for, you know, throughout this six year period where, you know, she was uh, in charge of the House during Republican control of the Senate and the, and the presidency, you know, we got this one thing done. She can, she can retire with some plaudits and 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 some success and it's like they didn't even put drug pricing in the thing they were just like you know not not important to us just drug pricing is up well and to the extent that it's to the extent that it's talked about it's talked about as the quote-unquote pay for yeah uh you know again as though the (laughs) government can't i don't know decide how it makes and uses its money but like that it's that it's discussed as oh um the the drug pricing provisions are going to end up as part of the uh, reconciliation package, which in doing so, we will institute these savings, which will then pay for some of the other things in the bill, including which just as of like today, there's of course, you know, another fresh round of staffers like going, uh, and like whispering to Politico, like, you know how we said, uh, uh like long, long-term care stuff. Nah, you know what? I, I think realistically, probably that's not, that's, that's not going to happen. We're going to, we're going to, we're going we're gonna to change things around. Uh, and, you know, I know that these, like these cycles and like happen endlessly, but you know, 
one of the things I think, you know, I think the reason to talk about this really for like mm-hmm. for us, at least or for, for me rather, because I think for the most part, I don't know, you, you tell me, but I mean, we joked recently about our revolution changing to what is it? Pragmatic prog- progressives or whatever fucking yeah, they bullshit. They want to accomplish like, things that are realistic instead of Medicare yeah, for all. So you know, for, for us, for us, the, like, I mean, we, we regularly make like the center for American progress and it's relative and it's like policies like a, the subject of punchlines on this show, because a lot of, what they suggest as uh, these big like uh, liberatory reforms or whatever amount to things like, I don't know, they were like staunchly against Medicare for all or staunchly uh, against like a bunch, you know, a bunch of other like actually very important, uh, much bigger goals that you would think would have that we would have proven in the last uh, just in the last few recent years that there is, you know, salient demand for among the American public to say nothing of the fact that like you can whip up demand for things that would be liberatory. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Um, That it's not that politics is not a simple game of analyzing fucking poll numbers and saying like, (laughs) Oh, this is popular already. Therefore we should, you know, uh, they're like, therefore why is that not happening? Um, you, You know what I mean? But I think this is what's kind of really important is that even if, even though we have like very little love, I think here for, and like a lot of these uh, organizations that are styled as like progressive, like, I think at the very least, if they're not going to do something like do a sustained public pressure campaign for something like the home, uh, the home care provision, right, uh, that was supposed to be part of uh, either the infrastructure package or the home care provision that now is supposed to be part of the reconciliation bill, right? If instead they do things like we've seen, you know, we've we've seen plenty of activists, for instance, like people who were formerly um, over the last couple of years, um, staunch advocates for Medicare for all. We've seen people, you know, go around and shill basically saying, oh, look how good it is that like Biden deigned to put long term care into this bill as opposed to, you know, letting their letting anyone that they're ultimately communicating to know that, you know, it is. <laughs> It is not something that is preordained. It is not something that is like coming down from on high from the fucking Biden administration. It's something that has to be fought for. And it's something that ha- the like people that do that will absolutely be cut out by people making these policies as long as people just continue to sort of like roll over. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, the thing is, I, mean, I, I think that one case or, you know, something that, that is interesting in this whole thing is, like the sunrise sunrise movement which is obviously one of the least precious inter- groups in dc in terms of criticizing biden or democratic leadership or anything like that and you know their big concern was the this civilian climate core that the ccc and and you know there's there are reasons to debate whether or not that's that's the thing to plant the flag in that that you know that's the one program that can't be abandoned above any other program obviously they have you know reason for believing that it's extremely important um and obviously the CCC was left out of the, or funding for it was left out of the bipartisan deal. And they did this big, you know, demonstration. And, but what they were, what they were asking for, their big demand was, was 10% of what was initially agreed to, right. you know? And so it's like, again, when you talk about like the kind of the shrinking ambition of, of, of this administration mm-hmm. and of the agenda, and even, even for the people who I think are doing a good job in terms of, you know, being critical and, and fighting for those things and, and messaging over, you know, parts of the bill that we probably get lost in the wash a little bit, um, you know, to be, to be fighting for 10% of what you had already been given is, is, a 
it's a tough, I mean, it's a tough position to be in. That's not a, that's not, not a, not a great take. And so I think that, you know, it is one of these things where you can see the ambition shrinking in real time. And if you don't fight, you know, even people who are fighting are coming away with, with that and people who aren't fighting, which is almost everybody else. Um, you know, what do we think is going to happen? Oh, I mean, I, I, I have to wonder where that comes from. Uh, you know, is that like, is that just like the policy rationality that gets, uh, you know, there's something in your that they put inside your your like rubber chicken dinner, like when you uh, finally <laughs> make the big move, the big industry push to DC, um, or is it the fact that like it's it's expressed in terms of like okay we're, we're we want ten percent of what we initially asked for, but then it's not really it's expressed in terms of like the amount of money we initially asked for, not like what we won't be able to do as a result of not having it. Um, uh, or is it like, you know, like I kept I keep coming back to this question of like mass base, like these groups can message to a lot of people, but they're not they're not con- constituted by a mass base in the sense that like the demands are not welling up from a mass base that mm-hmm. sets the agenda for the organization. The The demands are being set by the people who have their shops in D.C. and then they can mobilize a mass base behind those demands, but not the other way around. Right. 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 And interestingly, the, the, the one one pressure point or one source of, of 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 influence here. And if you know, if you're of if you're partial to the idea that like Joe Manchin is standing in the way of these things and, <laughs> um, you know, if not for him, like it would be all smooth sailing, we would have all the stuff would be coming, you know, across the, the desk easily and into law. And the, the the president himself is actually is the sort of person who can actually whip up a ton of, of support for something. I mean, he, you know, the, the, the bully pulpit that, 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 that Joe Biden enjoys is, is, is more powerful than certainly than any of these groups in their mailing lists. And like the, the funniest thing to me is that the white house accidentally showed how strong it was uh, when in the early goings, they sent, you know, when, when Joe Manchin was standing in the way of, I forget what it was. And they, um, they sent Kamala Harris down to West Virginia and Joe Biden immediately responded. I mean, it was, it was one of these things where he, he freaked out. I mean, it it was like, the response was so obvious and it was like, of course it's, these people aren't immovable. And, and like, if the president was actually into these, you know, these, these policies that he, you know, purports to, to care greatly about, he would just go, he would just go to Arizona and give one speech and here's the, here's the cinema, cinema show would be over. And they know that. And, and right. we've already seen it work. And, you know, so in terms of like, yeah, sort of ginning up support. And uh, obviously I think people on the left are, are, are partial to, you know, these kind of bottom up uh, shows of, of popular enthusiasm. And, I, and that, that's, that's obviously important and getting the president to, to do, you know, what they want is, is critical, but also, you know, in, in some sense, it's almost getting the president to use the power that he has to, to, to do the same thing. And it's like, you know, that, that to me is also a funny part of this that, you know, it, it took one day and Kamala Harris is a very effective spokesperson. She went to West Virginia for one day and it was, and, you know, and, and already the results were, were, were clear. So it's a, it's a challenging it's a challenging question for, I think, people who are, you know, activists and organizers and stuff and aren't part of this orbit. But um, there's definitely a way to do it. And there's definitely ample, you know, there's ample pressure and power to go around to, to make it happen. It's just, uh, you know, there's not a lot of trying at this point. So it's hard to say that things are, are failing. But Alex, how dare you suggest that we politicize the presidency? <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, it's funny. It reminds me so much of this point that a uh, friend of the show, Dean Spade, makes, which is that the point, you know, and, and Dean has like, I think, some really good criticisms of like sort of NGO world and nonprofit and charity world in general in his book on mutual aid that came out this past year. But one of the things that he talks about is the idea that what these organizations actually do, you know, what the move ons of the world actually do is sort of professionalize politics and injustice and separate it from ordinary life, right? Where it becomes sort of the thing that an ordinary person donates to, but doesn't necessarily participate in. And right. that, that reinforces the idea that the the people who can and have the permission in society to have this a- affective impact on what a policy framework could be, that those are people who are sort of elite or um, co-signed or in these organizations are sort of professionalized the kind of activism as brand versus activism as like an intervention in your day-to-day life. And what Dean says is that sort of this translation of activism into this brand or an organizational directive instead of something that people engage in on a level because they experience, you know, injustice and oppression in their day-to-day life, it's not only demobilizing, but it also like serves to effectively hide the root cause of injustice, as we've been saying through, you know, especially your uh, example, Alex, of the voting rights where Joe Biden himself is the thing that is standing in the way, but the organizations are not willing to even say his name as as the sort of framework for obstruction. And what it does ultimately is like through translating the sort of individual member of the body politic as someone who should be participating through like a pass-through organization, right? It, it definitely serves to, I think, reproduce this idea that politics is sort of pass it, that it's about complicity, that it's about, you know, finding and picking the right organizations or right politicians to donate to, and not that it's about this broader actual political struggle. It's kind of like a depolitization of politics. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the idea that you know, there were also like, you know, there were ones like democratic clubs and stuff like people used to participate in democratic politics and, and or, you know, and, and unions were like that, too. I mean, it's, it's the sort of thing. It's like yeah, mm-hmm. these institutions have, have, have withered to this incredible degree that, right, it's now the notion of how you can participate is, is has has shrunk into, you know, this sort of passive and, you know, muted state that we're currently seeing as as the norm it's it is yeah it's 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 kind of incredible in some ways to see how far that has yeah has gone it actually i know we didn't ask you on to talk about this piece specifically but it this um actually has reminded me a little bit of the most recent piece that you wrote for the prospect which is actually about how the money has sort of moved around in the campaign against nina turner which um she lost this week basically because a bunch of money had been dumped into her, her opponent just for not being Nina Turner. Could you talk about that piece like just a little bit maybe to wrap us out? Yeah, sure. I think um, I think this is a really important part of it because I think that the way the orientation of the Democratic Party to, to money, to big money is a big, is really, a, I, I think, a really useful framework to to understand kind of how things are operating right now. The 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 Ohio 11 race was was fascinating because the way that Chantel Brown, who obviously won that race, um, won was there was a lot of institutional support. She obviously was backed by Jim Clyburn and the CBC and Gregory Meeks and Hillary Clinton, which is, uh, it doesn't really mean anything, but it's kind of funny. (laughs) Um, And then also just incredible profusion of super PAC money. And her campaign website basically announced basically basically gave out the messaging that they would like for a super PAC to use and they named effectively the super PAC that they would like to use it 
And of course that super PAC <laughs> uh, showed up and spent $2 million over $2 million on negative tack ads um, against Nina Turner using that exact same language. This for being democratic majority for Israel. Um, and of course, Almost none of those ads even mentioned Israel because the messaging that that Chantel Brown was offering had nothing to do with Israel because that really wasn't a concern in this race in in Cleveland. Um, and obviously, the Democratic Party saw this was happening and they threw institutionally threw a ton of support behind Chantel Brown, anyways, despite the fact that this super PAC is funded by you know people who regularly donate to to Republican campaigns as well. And so it's kind of yeah. interesting. Sorry to get so long winded, but you know it's this sort of total super PAC takeover of, of a campaign is something we actually haven't really seen before. But coming out of the presidential election where Joe Biden was the first candidate to renege on the no super PAC money commitment mm-hmm. and obviously ended up winning and becoming the president. And then, you know, right behind him was Kamala Harris, who reneged on the no super PAC money commitment. She gets the vice presidency. And then Pete Buttigieg, who also reneged on that famously, uh, he gets a, you know, a top job in the White House. And so the, the Democratic Party that is in charge right now, the people who won are in charge, are, are have a have a vision of of money in politics, which is very, very different than what we were seeing even two years ago, which was, you know, no corporate, no corporate PAC money. He's talking about these sort of transparency pledges and stuff. That stuff is all gone. And now it's all about raising big money from big donors in big sums. And that's why you don't hear anyone talk about campaign finance reform anymore. That stuff is totally dead. Yeah. I mean, it's I think just like the current like landscape to me just makes so clear that right now sort of the game is really just to have and to hold power and not really do much else with right. it. Right. That's right. And just to raise as much money as, as possible off of off that stasis. Uh, you know, that's I mean, that truthfully, Jim Clyburn is very good at that. That's kind of like been his um, contribution in, in his legacy. And, and yeah, now we're going to see that really put to the test. I mean, that's, if, if everything could stay exactly the same, <laughs> that, that, that that's what they would prefer for it to happen. They, they would, they would love to just rake in as much money as possible, keep these razor thin margins and, 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 you know, be kind of unable to, to, to do much that that's pretty much a, an ideal state of affairs. Well, it also occurs to me that we have a set of institutional, kind of apparatuses that make that state of affairs pay off, right? I mean, we have, uh, you know, it's when things, when good things don't happen or when necessary things don't happen, you can still, you know, find ways of saying, uh, of claiming um, some solidarity with the people who didn't benefit from them, right? Uh, We have like institutions like within Congress that sort of allow you to do that kind of messaging. You can always hold like a hearing, um, to say that you're like, you know, do, doing something on the issue. But we also have institutions like outside of the state that, you know, um, do these things that, uh, you know, the, this is NGO world, right? Claims to like fill, fill in these gaps. But what it really does is sort of siphon off, um, siphon off dissent and, 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 you know, more, more important demands. I mean, I think that the question that, that sort of emerges is like, what is the, what is the point at which um, this no longer like pays off? Right. I think I mean, I think Democrats are gradually working themselves up into a situation where like the midterms could be really bleak. Right. They're like this is this like the casual sort of like politics of stasis means you're out of power, but that it's still that it's still actually like a net win for um, sort of organizations within the party network that that to me is that that is very characteristic of the sclerosis of democracy it's not merely that like republicans are looking to hungary it's that like democrats are looking to you know 
the next uh, fundraiser, uh, you know, as much as as much as anything else. Right. Right. And and and, you know, I think it's been reported that this is the case and it seems true to me as well that part of the reason there's no urgency on the voting rights stuff is that some people within the party think that the the sort of specter of voter suppression could be a really good fundraising tool. Um, oh my God. And it could, you know, both good juice luck. turnout and, you know, juice donations. So, um, yeah, it's cool. obviously incredibly cynical. That but- might be the most cynical. That might be the most cynical political move since like leveraging a pandemic for, you know, uh, the economy. So that's just like the, one of the most cynical moves I've ever heard of in my entire life. How dare you? How dare you uh, disparage them in claiming that they have ideological consistency, Phil? Yes. Oh, boy. Yeah. I mean, if you don't raise money, like, how are you going to keep throwing good parties and dinners and lunches at, yeah. at the VPs? I mean, you I, know, residents. I mean, I do I, think. How are you going to keep them down on the farm after they've been <laughs> the Wolfgang Puck? I mean, I, I do think all of this, though, it's, it, you know, it. I think it's important to have brought up this stuff with um, with uh, the the Nina Turner race, for example, and how the how the example specifically of uh, I forget if we talked about it within the context of this, but go read Alex's piece if you haven't. Um, oh, yeah, just talking talking about yeah, it's um, really good the practice of uh, red boxing and also referring to this great um, I think Yale Law Review article that uh, talks about uh, basically like how how uh, red boxing is this technique basically where you know you you essentially have candidates put putting information packets uh, on their websites or on like party websites that more or less directly ask for uh, specific messaging to be um, to be produced and paid for and run in different uh, ad markets by super PACs and things like that. Um, And how that basically has allowed for, you know, all the things that people used to worry about um, that uh, or, you know, talk about regarding like Citizens United and stuff like that. And all this, like the idea that um, collusion between campaigns and and super PACs uh, or PACs of any kind is not, possible etc it's just like there's clearly a very formalized process of plausible deniability um there so yeah go go read alex's piece about that but i think the thing is that like it's really important to have to have i think brought this up in the context of all the other stuff that we're talking about because if you look actually to something like the result in the nina turner Mm -hmm. race Mm -hmm. you know what is the takeaway for a party apparatus that also views something like voting rights being threat in threat as a fundraising opportunity um you have i just um i guess uh, i've i have never heard of this uh, particular op-ed columnist before so i'm not going to even refer to his name but uh you have for instance some skin suit in the washington post saying uh of this race too many politicians in both parties promise to be fighters when they run for office but the last thing congress needed is more brawling that's what makes Chantel Brown's upset victory on Tuesday in an Ohio special election so refreshing. Refreshing. She beat Nina Turner, the epitome of smash mouth style liberalism. What? In a Democratic primary to fill the House seat, blah, blah, blah. So you know what I mean? Like immediately it's a self-reinforcing mechanism, right? Yeah, because the, the, you know, the, the, the ends justify the means and the ends, if that makes <laughs> sense. You know what I mean? Uh, it, there's, it's, a, it's like a loop. The thumb was clearly placed on the scale of this race through this exact, partially this, like, um, the funding mechanisms that we're talking about, but also then it, it like becomes this greater takeaway for like, I don't know, a civility politics that mm-hmm. just doesn't exist as though things as though political debates were not fundamentally contentious as though this was not, you know, you, you know what I mean? As though we're in like some sort of post post dissent era. Well, that like within a within a party, for example, that like there has to be there has to be like a single 
unity or something or that there can't be outside forces from like the left of the democratic party for example pushing uh pushing against it just a final thought no i mean alex i really appreciate your reporting on this and i'm so glad that you were able to join us today because you know it's it's a it's a lot of fun to be able to talk about with you because you've done so much like digging in the places that i don't even want to look because it stresses (laughs) me out to think about you know what i mean um if uh, if people want to find you, where can they find you? Yeah, I mean, I'm 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 writing for the prospect. Yeah, the American prospect, and I don't know if you want to follow me on Twitter. I guess I'm Alex underscore Salmon. That's probably the, that's probably where you'll find. As me. opposed to following you, like to your house, <laughs> like your house. <laughs> we, don't, we don't want your address. I mean, you can you can find me walking around too. I, I that's fine, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Alex, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming on yeah, today. Thanks. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was a blast. And uh, I think we'll wrap it there. Yep. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. Someone told me you'd be here Whispering these familiar things Talking to my little head Smoking the same old cigarettes I would have laughed Someone said I'd be so